Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 170th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode was brought to you by patron Alex Schwartz. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Drea Clark on. She's a festival programmer, a producer, a podcaster, jack of all trades. She even taught at USC Film School for a while. Yeah, for like 13 years. Uh, So she is a wealth of knowledge. We could have talked to her for another 15 hours, but we dive in a ton on the insight that she has garnered from being in the festival game for so long and how she applies that to her producing career, how she picks projects, the ways in which she makes them stand out amongst the crowd, and how she applies her wealth of filmic knowledge to producing in general. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that she uh, works at Sundance now and ran Slamdance, so... (laughs) Not not the tiniest festivals you've never heard of. Yeah, she's a wealth of knowledge and a real hoot. Also on the show, we're bringing back this segment, Call Sheet. I Ooh. wonder if like any of our listeners actually remember that we did this segment before. I would say 10. <laughs> yeah, ten I think do. that's 10 is the episode that we last did it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, uh, but we're bringing it back. And I think that it's kind of retooled before we were just trying to talk to as many different crew members as we could. And that's pretty overwhelming. And you end up wanting to talk to everybody for a super long amount of time. Uh, so we're, we've retooled it and we are looking at the hidden jobs of the filmmaking industry. People who you've heard of their job, but you don't really have a great understanding of what they do. Um, so we're talking to my old friend, Elena White, who writes commercial treatments. So we'll talk about what she likes about treatments, what she doesn't, the things that she does to punch things up and make them even better to get huge directors, even bigger and better jobs. But before we do that, we have one important pressing matter, and that is our Patreon page. Yeah, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash justshootapod. It's a place for you to support the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, if you tune in every week and you feel like you get some value out of this, then check out our Patreon page and... uh, Give us a buck a month. Throw us a buck or two. We appreciate it. And if you don't, we still appreciate you. Thanks for listening. But really, folks, if you don't give us money, then just tell other people about the podcast. Yeah, that's almost that's, as good. Maybe that's the trade. Well, cool. Well, thanks for listening. And on with the show. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
tell us what you do exactly. I am a commercial treatment writer, which is a ghost writer for commercial directors, uh, which basically means that I do uh, technical and creative writing on behalf of the directors when they're bidding on commercial jobs, and that gets submitted to the ad agency along with a numerical bid that comes from the production company. So we talk a lot about treatments on the show, and you were basically like the secret weapon of a director who's maybe too busy to really kind of um, dial in exactly what they want to say on a treatment, or um, maybe they're not like as strong a writer as you are. You're kind of, you know, you, you're lending your expertise on uh, writing treatments to directors who want a little bit of extra help. Yes. How does a director find you? How do you get employed by these people? Uh, so most of the companies that I work with are larger production companies, and they have anywhere from like five to 25 directors on their roster. Um, so originally when I first started, I was working for a pretty big a commercial production company and I was a coordinator there and my executive producer had quite a few directors on the roster who um, were French. English was not their first language and although their speaking skills were great, oh, that's you good. Know, yeah. writing is difficult no matter what, so it's even more difficult when you're writing in a language that is not you know, your first language. So I started rewriting treatments for some of the directors on our roster. And so that's how I got into it. And then from there, when I decided that I wanted to go freelance, uh, there was executives and other coordinators at the company who were really helpful in getting my name out to other directors that they worked with, friends that they had at other production companies, uh, the freelancers who come in and work on commercial jobs, you know, they might be there for a couple of weeks and then they are off to the next company. So they take your name out with them. Mm -hmm. So it was really more word of mouth and connection, which just word gets out. Yeah. yeah, that's how I did it. Now, I do know other people who, you know, basically cold called production companies and emailed uh, samples and, you know, made connections that way. But for me, it was more word of mouth and people who, you know, having met all these people at the first production company that I worked at. Now that you've kind of moved into doing this full-time professionally, it's not just people who, um, who where English is a second language for them. Um, it's kind of just anybody who needs help. Yeah, exactly. Right? And even before I left that production company, other directors who were under other EPs at the company had started using me. And it, it really just comes down to um, the deadlines are so quick and you have your phone call with the agency and then they're like okay you know maybe can we get a treatment in like two or three days and for instance that director if they're on another job if they're you know in budapest directing three days uh, you know three-day shoot they're really not going to have time to sit down and write a treatment and make it sound good so they hire someone like me who can help them out or you know again if they're not the greatest writer in the world and honestly sometimes you just get directors who are a little burnt out because they've been directing commercials forever and they've written thousands of treatments and they just don't feel like they have a whole lot left to say in terms of writing treatments so they'll hire someone like me for those reasons as well do you have any moves you like to do or do you have any like what what's your secret weapon 
what are you adding? Um, what do you like to add the best, I guess, is what I'm saying. I think the first thing is, is you always want to really make it feel as though the director wrote it themselves. You don't want to go so far afield into your own style that the agency reads it or the client, you know, at the end of the day reads mm-hmm. it and they know that there is no way the director wrote it. So uh, for me, it's really paying attention to how the director speaks on the conference call, the kinds mm-hmm. of jokes that they make, you know, do they like to use, you know, multi-syllabic words or do they really stick to short words and succinct sen- sentences? You just want to make sure that that comes across in the treatment so that they feel like it's an extension of the person that they spoke to on the phone when they did their conference call. Can I ask you a specific question about that? Sure. If they swear a lot on the call, do you try to put that into the treatment? So, no. We usually don't put uh, curse words into the treatment. I myself, as Matt can tell you, I have terrible potty mouth. So there will be times when I will try and work in a swear word yeah. or two like into the treatment. Awesome. Yeah, fucking awesome, I feel like, is the one... If you're doing like a beer commercial or like a sports spot, you could say fucking awesome. Tongue in cheek, right? I've been trying to like pretend I'm young and I'll put like an AF. Like, oh, this will be cool AF. This will like make your socks. Boy, Orin loves the the fire emoji on a lot of his treatments. (laughs) I think for me where I tend to use it the most is actually when I'm writing out the story itself. So, Uh for instance, if you have a character who you want to convey that they have a certain expression on their face, like a what-the-fuck expression, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I might write something in, like, italics that says, what the fuck just happened? Right, right. And sometimes I'll try and soften it by (laughs) putting an asterisk in for the you. And it just depends on who the agency is and who the client is. Uh, Sometimes I I get away with it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, sometimes they let it slide, but most of the time they're like, oh. Yeah, let's take out the cuss yeah. words. And are you collaborating with uh, a layout artist as well? Are they like helping with pulling? Because that's the other half of the treatment, right? Of course, it's like there's so many visual elements that are involved in that. How do you collaborate with those people? So if I even know who the visuals person is on the job, m- my specific collaboration with them is more about, hey, when do you need to have the written words from me by in order mm-hmm. to get your part of the job done in enough time. Right, uh, right. And I tend to add a lot of my own ideas into the treatment. So these poor visuals people will get the treatment and they'll like read some weird stuff that I put in there. And then they're like, oh God, I got to like do a quick pull on these ideas that she added. So excuse my French, but it's like shit kind of rolls downhill. <laughs> sure, sure. So, um, so yeah, so I don't, really interact with them too much beyond just coordinating sure. deadlines. Rolling your and, shit down the hill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, right. here's the treatment. Hope you like all the extra stuff I added. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but that's so interesting, though, because I think that's probably, you know, that's part of what they're paying you for, too. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. It's not just articulate what the director said on the call in a more cogent way. It's like you still have to plus it, right? A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, even when the director is on the call with the agency and maybe they're spitballing ideas back and forth and they'll throw out stuff that seems really great in the moment. But then when you're working on the treatment, 
it doesn't make sense in the story somehow. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. part of the treatment writer's job, or at least I consider it treatment writer's job, you help make the story make sense. Um, and there are some directors that I never speak to. I just listen to the call and I write the treatment off of that. There's others that I work with who I might, you know, talk to them for about an hour before I start writing and just so that I can be a sounding board that he or she can bounce ideas off of. Um, So for me, that's what makes the job interesting is that, you know, you're not just some transcriptionist and you're not just, you Mm -hmm. know, putting sentences together. You're adding, you know, you're plussing their creative vision with your own creative vision. You're the secret weapon. I try to be. I really would love to know, like, kind of what the biggest mistakes you've seen in treatments. Uh, like, what makes horrible treatments? Um, let's see. Well, she's I've... never submitted one, so. <laughs> but I definitely have looked at a lot <laughs> I'm sure of... she's fixed many. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's I, I, I have fixed treatments, and I have... I always ask for samples uh, when I'm working with someone new, just so I can see what their writing style is like. I think when you read treatments where they're trying too hard to be clever, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I think where you read treatments that, you know, all of us mistakes are going to get by, typos are going to get by. I'm terrible at spotting my own typos. Like at this point, I don't even typo check the first draft. I come back and check it later because I'm not going to see those typos. But I will see treatments that have been sent out that are just riddled with mistakes and um you know wow well it sounds like that's something that's just like nice and straightforward at least just you know yeah yeah it's really just it's that just making sure your work is meticulous and then also just not trying to be overly clever where it feels like you're being phony right you know just show genuine enthusiasm about the project don't be phony with it Ah, well, that's so wonderful. Like, what straightforward advice? Like, just kind of dot your I's and cross your T's and also be genuine. That's exactly yeah. what you want to hear. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no booby trap to that. You know, it's Absolutely. just like, be a good student. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elena. This, uh, it's so great to get to have you on the show and to shed a little bit of light on this kind of secret sort of part of the industry it's so interesting to me we haven't done a call sheet in a long time and it was because i was like oh this is the perfect thing like everybody knows what a dp does who cares about that like i want to talk to people where it's like you i'm like i am maybe a little foggy on what the job is that's my favorite so thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks elena well thank you for having me Hey, we're going to take a quick break because we have Seth Worley, one of the co-founders of Plot Devices, with us here in the studio. His company makes products that help filmmakers figure out their stories and storyboards and all sorts of cool things. Seth, can you tell us a little bit about your process of how you write a feature script and why the story clock is helpful for that? Yeah, so I realized a while back that when I get a story idea, I don't just get one idea. I don't get a log line just broadcast to me. I get a big pile of ideas. Some of them are really well formed, like scenes, sequences, characters, themes. Some of them are weird, random, unformed ideas that need to be grown a little more. And because I have a loose sense of traditional Joseph Campbell story structure, I know where most of these ideas are probably going to fall in the story. So when I drop them in, inevitably there are big gaps that need to be filled to get me from point A to C. This is normally where I break down crying and give up and stop. Until I figured out this process, which made it a lot easier for me, by visualizing the story like a clock, if it's a two-hour movie, the 30-minute point is at the 3 o'clock mark, the hour point is at the 6 o'clock mark, and so on. 
you'll find that, you know, your act breaks are normally right above three o'clock and right above nine o'clock. You take the ideas, your pile of ideas that you got, you drop them generally where they're probably going to fall in the story, and you pinpoint the gaps. And then by using symmetry, you can fill these gaps organically. Rather than injecting random weird ideas from the outside, you can extract ideas from what you already have. So if I see I have a gap at one point in the story, I can look at the opposite side of the clock to see where there are things that I could build on or pay off. It's a simple but effective way to be able to fill out the story and to get to an outline quicker and start writing. Whether you end up following that outline or not, it gives you at the very least peace of mind and confidence to keep going into the weeds. Cool. Well, if you want to find out more about the Story Clock and the various products that Plot Devices makes to help you figure out your movie, check out plotdevices.co. This week, this is the big one. We're giving away everything. That's right. We're talking Storyboard Notebook. We're talking Story Clock Notebook. We're talking Story Clock Workbook in your choice of a pin. To win it all, go to Instagram or Twitter right now, tag at plotdevices.co, and let us know what movie or show had a plot twist that just blew your mind. And let's disqualify Sixth Sense from the get-go. For me, a movie with a twist that really inspired me was Memento. Totally changed what the entire movie was about. And then more recently, I really loved what happened at the end of the third episode of Russian Doll. Made that show so much more unique than I thought it was going to be. I really loved it. So let us know what movie or show had a plot twist that blew your mind, and you might just win it all. Hey, we are here with Drea. Thank you for coming. Drea Clark, hello, welcome. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Your resume is super long and super complex. (laughs) You've got a lot of different stuff going on. Um, Drea, you're so old and unfocused. (laughs) It's a delight to have you. Well, I was aiming for a compliment. (laughs) You're a master of all trades. I'll take that. Uh, Film critic, programmer, podcaster, producer. Festival programmer. Yes, yes. Festival programmer, pardon me. Yeah, yeah. And I want people giving me the uh, computer. Exactly. Sorry, Oren's disappointed, but I'm extra yeah, that's excited. that's why we, I, we're looking for engineers slash filmmakers. <laughs> Ignore his LinkedIn request. Then. <laughs> yes, my uh, GitHub. Do you know that website? Oh, I'm so glad <laughs> I don't. Page. Yeah. No. Drea. Uh, let's start with festival programming. What festivals do you program for currently, and what which ones have you programmed for in the past? Um, I feel chronologically is the best way Ooh, to explain perfect. my uh, festivals, because there's over, been overlap. I started in festivals when I moved moved out to LA many moons ago. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin. Oh, cool. Um, obviously, head. yes. Go Badgers. As you, I'm sure you know, like, obviously you think film schools. Of course, of and you course. Think yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. I do want to say that uh, it's great for listeners to hear because I think we get people writing in all the time that are like, should I go to film school or like, oh, I, have I went that. to a crappy film school and I feel bad about it. It's not a big deal. No. Um, I taught at USC School of Cinema for 13 years, and I don't think you should necessarily go to a film school. Really? I kind of... I went to USC Ford. Oh. Not 13, but... Uh, <laughs> 12 years. Thank God. Um, <laughs> what, what, did, what did you teach? I taught music video production. Oh, dang. What? I was That's a gonna, class? I wanted to take that class so bad. It was great. It, that is a great class. Yeah, it was great. A lot of good videos come out of that class. Too. I thought so. And I had... It was wonderful because I was able to bring in... Um, this is going to be a very meandering thing because yeah, my yeah. career, as I you mentioned, has been very meandering. I'm going to get you back onto film festivals. No, it's okay because it does all it. tie in. I started in production working in music video. And so that was my background of learning the ropes, really. And it was great um, in terms of just hands-on experience because the turnover time is so quickly um Mm -hmm. normally a tv show you're well if you're lucky enough to get crewed on that you're locked in for a long time um indie films even a short one is still like 
three or four weeks, whereas a music video, if you're on, you can kind of mm-hmm. prove yourself as worthy and kind of make yourself. Because, you know, once people have a crew and a team they like, those are the people you call first mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. So once you prove that you're not a dum dumb and relatively competent and easy to be around for very long shoot days, sure. then, um, then you're good to go. You're hopefully pretty good to go. So if you can prove that without spending $45,000 a year, <laughs> even better. <laughs> but the festival thing. So I moved out here with no plan from Wisconsin. I just knew I was going to move to LA or New York and I'm from the Midwest. So I was done with snow. It's like sure. LA it is. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have... <laughs> any contacts or a good solid plan but um you guys had a dream in my heart and and that midwestern work ethic and we all moved here right i get you i mean step one is move here step two is figure out why you moved here yeah no it's very real i think the figuring out why is a huge part and um i when i studied you know i studied communication arts which was tv film and then english and so we did more there were some production classes but it was more film theory and film mm-hmm. criticism and developing an eye. And I think that's definitely helped my career as a programmer in looking at things historically, having context, like that just, that helps when you're comparing films like against other films. But when I moved out here, I wasn't totally sure what I was going to do. I ended up making friends with some people who went to SC randomly. And one of them was interning. I didn't even know what interning was, by the way. Wisconsin was not like, make sure, go You're find like, an internship. Like I was Work for free? Yeah, I was yeah. so walking blind. I can't even explain. And so she was like, oh, yeah, I, I work at this film festival. I'm like, great, I'm bored. Do they want me? Mm-hmm. I'll do whatever. And then I stayed there for 19 years. So I started at Slamdance as an intern. And then I moved into um, shorts programming mm-hmm. and really liked it and realized, oh, actually, I was programming because in Wisconsin, I ran the the, the play circle, like our little art cinema in the mm-hmm. union. I'm like, oh, I called it picking films. Uh-huh. But yes, programming. <laughs> that's that's what I like. Okay, good. Um, and then so eventually I, I ran the slam dance narrative team for about 13 years and then was eventually the exec director of the festival for two or three years and produced the festival as well. And wow. actually Slamdance, the the other thing I fell in love with, Slamdance has programmed our team is entirely um, consists of other filmmakers, mostly mm-hmm. alumni filmmakers. So it's very different than other festivals and it's done in a really sort of diplomatic roundtable, mm-hmm. de- diplomatic, democratic, one of those sure. sort of things. Yeah. I had to be diplomatic as the team leader. It's a democratic process. Right. But Slamdance's whole focus is first-time directors. So all right. of our competition slate is. So yeah, Oren Pelly, um, I programmed Lynn Shelton's first film. Did you do Drake Doremus's Drake Doremus's first one, yep. Well, your face is lighting up. Like clearly you really loved those films. Oh yeah. Yeah. The thing about being at a discovery festival, which is mm-hmm. primarily what I program, it's a whole trusting your gut thing. So it's twofold. One, you feel like you've been part of this film even if you didn't help create it sure when I mean, it you gets are there because you careers right right and you fought for it and like and then two when they do succeed you're sort of like oh i was a doula for their birth sure yeah how wonderful <laughs> but like sean baker i programmed yeah. sean's first film well, in 2006 and yeah, yeah. um and Tangerine. to have him yeah and to have him go on and make the incredible films he has so the russo brothers Mark Forrester, like the amount of people who've come through. What? You did his first movie? Yeah. That was the slam dance of it. And then again, being at a festival meant that it was sort of seasonal. So I was still able to be in production. And that's when I was really working music video and 
festivals back and forth. Wait, so are you still involved with Slam Dance now? No, I, I'm, I've been at Sundance for the past couple of years. So I am now at Sundance. I was going to say Liz Manischel. I, I can't believe oh, I didn't Liz, yeah, with Liz. Of course. Liz is a dear friend. Oh, yeah. she's such a great human. Yeah, yeah. She's the best. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and Liz, I actually weirdly met through Film Independent. I've um, programmed the LA Film Festival for the last 10 years and was the senior programmer for the last four or something. And then I'm still at Film Independent as producer in residence. And then I've also, for the last four years, programmed Gina Davis's Bentonville Film Festival, Mm -hmm. um, which is a concentration on really looking for women and people of color and other underrepresented voices, both in front of and behind the camera. Wait, what are you doing at Sundance? Programming also? Yes, programming. um, I'm in the episode. We started an episodic section three years ago now. And that's like TV? It's TV. Or web? It's primarily TV. Um, what are, oh, I should, every year like blurs together so quickly. The, um, I think the early stuff was like. But we showed Wild Wild Country was one of uh-huh. our premieres, which yeah. was this incredible documentary series. And so do you show just the first couple episodes or how they, does that work? They, it's a split. So some of them, we have a. You guys did, uh, OJ. Oh yeah, that was the this people year. Against, yeah. And this year we did Finding Neverland as well. Yeah. The Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like um, the a marathon screening where you were just like, oh, we're yes. gonna watch all of yes. this. Oh, Finding Neverland is it like a miniseries? The Michael Jackson. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, it was like a three hours, four hours. The one that came out this year. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was like a four-hour movie, but it's no, an episodic. No, no, no. It was episodic. But yeah. you showed it all at once. Yeah. Oh wow. And then um, these are all documentaries, but we showed a lot of scripted stuff too. But the Wu Tang. Um, documentary which ended up at Showtime which I love the episodics there's something great about the structure of that of it's a different approach to how they're setting up the storytelling mm-hmm. um, and I like that it flexes different muscles for the artists and um, so we show to us what represents the best of the best so we'll have um, we have independent pilots one of the scripted pilots that we showed this year called work in progress just got picked up um, with actually with Lily Wachowski as an EP oh, on wow. it. What's the lowest budget, least famous thing that you program? Like, do you, like at Sundance? Yeah. Um, well, you wouldn't have heard of it, but like, <laughs> it's hard. It's a whole range. Like we and it, we also showed different lengths. We showed the entirety of State of the Union, which was uh, starred Chris O'Dowd and Gone Girl. Help me, Rosamund Pike. She's like one of those like a. Pretty blonde actress who I could not pick her out She's of great. A... She's so Hitchcocky. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's written by Nick Hornsby. Mm-hmm. It was directed by... Right. Well, you guys all have access to the But I mean, can internet. somebody... Like, if Matt and I made a show, is yes. there a way that so, could get into Sundance? Or y- yes, do we have to because be that's Nick Hornsby? Like work in progress, the one I just mentioned that got picked up. That was one that was made by this um, gay comic out of Chicago who's been working on it for years. It's like, it's not someone who's like, yes, I'm fresh out of film school. Like, she's been honing... Um, her one woman play for a long time, which mm-hmm. this is based on. And so she made, we get a lot of sort of independently made pilots. And episodics is an area that I find really exciting. It's why I'm so psyched to do it at Sundance. So many people who are making films actually kind of want to be making TV, but mm-hmm. you're, you've never really thought of it that way. And sure. I know for us at Sundance, the hope is like that it could be the same sort of marketplace for new creatives in the same way that film is. So the people who are thinking that more in episodic structure, people Mm -hmm. who are, oh, I built this whole world and I have a whole Bible with the whole first four seasons arced out, you know, those are the things we're looking for as well. So we definitely have ones that we played 
that you don't know who they are and you don't mm-hmm. know the actors in them. Right, it's not Wu-Tang Clan. Or... No. Those were the ones that I remembered because they're the ones that I was saying is like our all of our pitching points <laughs> during. Sure. But the ones that really excite me, it's the same thing. It's the discovery of right, it. Right, right. When you're looking at new pilots, what's the thing that like makes you excited about them that makes you want to program a pilot? So the thing that gets me, it's it's twofold. I keep saying it's twofold, but I guess I'm a bilateral thinker. <laughs> Who knew? Now I've, what an educational experience for me. One of them is the idea of directorial voice or authorial voice. So much with indie film is this way as well. But I find that almost to its detriment. Like, we'll get a lot of first-time filmmakers who've made this story that's about something really significant to them. And therefore, they sometimes are not as tight with it as they should be. They're not as looking at the storytelling. They're looking more mm-hmm. at like, no, but that's how it really was. Oh, that's how it really happened. Yeah. There's nothing worse than being in a, like the a screenwriting workshop and being like, well, yes. this is bad. And then being like, well, this is how it really went down. Yeah. And you're, you're like, like, well, okay, great. now. Well, now we're writing it, so yeah. let's do it better. Or sometimes yeah. I'll be like, I don't really believe this. And they're like, no, it, that really happened. I'm like, well, then write it in a way that makes me believe right. it, if it really <laughs> happened. And so in f- film, that definitely happens all the time, where, and you've saved up and you have this one big story, but I think that can fall flat. Whereas with episodic, if it's either webisodes, if you're looking at people making four or five minute or 10 minute pieces, or more traditional kind of 22 minute length, um, I think there's a requirement because of the structure to do that editing, to tighten in a way that with a film, it can kind of stay loosey-goosey. You're like, I've got 90 minutes. I'll have this 10-minute scene with my dad that really happened. Sure. Like That would be a whole episode of your web series. Right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, we can't do a whole episode with him just talking to his dad. So you have to fine-tune it. So I think it takes episodics. And I'm saying that sort of interchangeably both for what people think of as web series. I don't really like the term web series only because it has such a like early 2000s. Yeah, kind of digital. Right. Digital series. Yeah. Yeah. You say web series and you think, you know. Like just terrible toaster effects and just a really rudimentary filmmaking. And I think there's people out there doing really sophisticated and playful work Mm -hmm. that just happens to be episodic structure. Right. So like I said, the... fold one of my twofold is having that distinctive voice because you know for years what we've gotten from television has been something that's been so heavily edited through broadcasters through their weird structure of oh i got something picked up for pilot and now fifty thousand people are going to give me right, notes and on standards it standards and practices right and by the time we see a f- a lot of TV shows, they've been almost euthanized. Like this, mm-hmm. the whole soul has been sucked out of them. And yeah, you just sand all the edges off. Yeah. yeah. And so having the ability to just put that forth yourself, um, if it's online, if it's through festivals, it's the same thing as with indie film, but a lot more people, I think, are taking that on. And I, I encourage it. I think it's a, I think it's a smart move for showing the kind of Um, storytelling you're able to do especially if you want to maybe end up in tv maybe that kind of structure works better for you um so that was the one fold is the kind of what i'm looking for is the uniqueness and the voice but also what is the story telling me that i'm not already seeing that's Mm -hmm. always what we're asking right like i've seen oh is this a workplace story of are there two is there a receptionist that has a crush on the guy that works sure, as sure. dead? You know, like there's shows that I've seen iterations for for years, but then this is something of, oh, it's brand new, like that I've never seen. For example, I'll use the work in progress again. Wait, or, is this part of the first fold? 
Still? This is still the first fold. Okay. Man, they really, my, my two folds really sort of blur together, but but I'm sure I'll come back to the second fold at some point. But the, um, but again, in terms of that, yeah, the authorial voice, that work in progress, which I'll just use as my example for this, um, Abby, and it's killing me, I don't remember her last name, but the, the creator of it, and she stars in it, and like I said, she's older gay comic who lives in Chicago. And so that's a unique worldview. I don't see a lot of TV shows. And her show is structured about her dating and finding her way around. She starts dating a trans guy, which she's never done before. And so that is a whole, and it's really funny. And also, oh, she's really depressed. I'm like, it's so funny. You guys, she's super depressed. It sounds like a cable show, honestly, though. It does. But she's this, but all of those things are, that's not going to come through your traditional, Mm -hmm. like, ooh, I'm going into a network and I'm going to pitch. So I've got this older suicidal lesbian and she meets a trans waiter, right? Like, so those are the, but when I, when you see it, she has such a voice and it's so funny and so unique and the insights you get from it and the talking points. Um, and the twofold of why I think episodic is the is the structure of it. I'm looking for something that doesn't just feel like a short film that you've called an episodic. Mm-hmm. I want it to have the idea of, oh, there are so many interesting narrative threads here that you have built an interesting worldview. I get where I am. Even in four minutes, you can see that with things. Um, I get where I am. I haven't seen it before. Oh, I want to know where they're going to go. Where's she going to go? What's he going to do? You know, like something that's setting up, that's what you want. And that has this tone, but it also has this possibility to it. Or else it's just a short film. Short films are great, but that's, it's not the same thing. Different deal. You know what I love about this, um, just kind of on a, maybe a more broad level, is that um, I feel like independent cinema is, economically business-wise is like kind of in a weird place right now where it's it's hard to make money in independent movies right like you kind of just have to be a rich person or no one in order to get them bankrolled currently right it's never been easier to make a movie but it's never been but it's still pretty darn hard to find the finances and make money on it right and so i think a lot of the filmmakers who have an eye towards smaller more intimate more offbeat stories you know if you don't want to do an avengers movie or or a mission impossible movie indie movies used to be the thing that you could do now that that's going away tv is kind of bubbling up right but Mm -hmm. then but there's so many gatekeepers as you were saying before and so what i love about sundance doing these episodic programming slates is like it gives you a chance to do the independent thing that makes money and maybe you actually will be able to find a marketplace for it well, the hope too, it's it's in the same way, like with Slamdance, with the examples I gave you of of directors whose first work we programmed, you probably never saw the first feature that we programmed, sure, sure. but then you've seen subsequent work of theirs. And it's the same thing with episodics. It may be, it's, it's interesting, you may not ever see, I'm just, it's going to be my go-to, but like, you may never see the pilot of work in progress that we showed at the festival but luckily now you will get to see. And there's, it's also the voice of it. Like the Broad City women created their whole characterization, sure. the whole flow of the show. High Maintenance was another show that developed online. I love comparing those two, though, because Broad City, I remember when that show was picked up for like past pilot with Greenlit for series, there were like, I, I swear to God, there were episodes of their web series that had 300 views. Yeah, like no one was watching that show 
before it became a TV show. Whereas yeah. High Maintenance had a following. True. And, like, right, right. you know, people were excited about it. But High Maintenance was the show that, like, people would be like, oh, have you seen this cool web series? Right. People you were know. paying on Vimeo to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did, actually. Seems like something you would do. Support yeah, yeah. an artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that's nice about them as well, and that stands out maybe is something that's more of a threat. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 